Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of The Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin, along with my co-host Bruce Kelly. Today we're talking to R.J. Moore, Chief Executive of Private Advisor Group. We're going to talk about RIA valuations, among other things. Bruce, you want to you want to kick it off with the first question on this? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Jeff. Hey, R.J., how are you? I'm doing very well, Bruce. Thanks. So nice to have you on on the podcast here to chat about something we were chatting about for a story we did recently on RA evaluations, and then also just to catch up with you and what you're doing with Private Advisor Group. Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you and Jeff, and uh, looking forward to a great conversation. So I think Jeff kind of short-stinted you there on your introduction. I don't have all the notes in front of me, but you... Not only have you been pre- uh, a CEO of Private Advisor Group, which is, I guess you call it the largest branch or largest OSJ at LPL currently, but you were CEO of Satera Financial when it went came out of bankruptcy a few years ago and was sold. You were also, I believe, was it president at LPL for a while? Or yeah, CLO. I was a CFO and then president. So CFO was, and president. Yeah. And then you also had a stint as a CEO for a couple of years in there, CEO of an asset management firm, a British asset management firm. Yeah, legal in that, general, uh, right. investment management. Yeah, in so North been, America. They're North yeah, America. I've been very, very fortunate to have a fair number of uh, interesting business cards. So Yeah, so you've had some senior, you've had some senior positions. That's one of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you. So just first of all, first off, could you just tell me what you're doing with all that background? Could you tell us what you're doing at Private Advisor Group now? What is Private Advisor Group and when did you start there and what are you doing there? Sure. Well, I joined Private Advisor Group last November. I had been longtime friends as well as a professional relationship with the co-founders. Pat Sullivan and John Hyland. And so after Satera, I took a couple of years off. I had some health issues, et cetera, that I needed to address. And starting in the summer of, of 2020, I engaged in a conversation with Pat and John about the future of private advisor group and the direction of travel. And one thing led to another, and, and we made the decision for me to join as the CEO. Uh, I also took an equity stake in the business as a as one of the five partners and private advisor group is headquartered out in Morristown, New Jersey and it is a very large wealth management company it has over 700 advisors affiliated with it uh, across 38 states here in the United States and you know is really dedicated to facilitating the delivery of independent financial advice to end clients uh, across the country as you're well aware, given all the reporting that you do and the background work that you do as part of that work, there is you know a huge demand for financial planning, for uh, advice in navigating what is a fairly complex set of investments. Uh, also, just thinking about various objectives that people have at various stages of their life, and uh, those who choose to work with an a financial advisor definitely are advantaged relative to those who try to do it on their own. Right. So we're very passionate about the delivery of that and creating the technology, creating the marketing, the compliance and regulatory controls that are needed to uh, do that successfully and efficiently. Right. So every every week, every other week, Jeff or I or someone else at Investment News is writing another story about a big RIA acquisition, right? The RIA acquisition business is going full steam here in 2021. It slowed down a little bit at the start of 2020, at the start of the pandemic and the like. And then in the second half of the year, it really picked up again. And you're also seeing a a big, sizable increase in valuations. Jeff and I have spoken about that with various people on the on the podcast uh, over the past year or so, 
Notably, you saw recently in the within the past week or two, Ron Carson's firm got a reportedly billion dollar valuation on Carson Wealth Management with seventeen or eighteen billion dollars in assets, a three hundred million dollar investment from Bain Capital. There, we just wanted to sit down with you and try to make some sense of where the RAA valuation marketplace is today versus where it was 10 years ago when this the roll up boom really started with you know United Capital and Focus and Mercer and these others picking up steam as as they did in the past 10 they launched maybe 15 years ago and they really picked up steam over the past 10 years particularly after the credit crisis so could you give us a little background i think when you and i chatted for that the and the story we're basing this on if people want to find it online the title is um, How High Can RIA Valuations Go? And you can just search on that title with investment news in Google and you should be able to find it pretty easily. And it's just kind of fascinating to me, the history of where RIA, RIA valuations were 10 or 15 years ago. Where are they today? And when you and I chatted for that, you started off saying that it used to be really based on a firm's, say, let's just take for, for argument's sake, or illustration sake, a, a firm with a billion dollars in assets, right? Client assets. And that used to be worth based on a, it used to be valued at a, on a revenue basis. And now it's valued on a EBITDA basis, which is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization or net income cash flow kind of basis. So if you could just kind of walk us through a little bit of that, please, where I'm, how did how did it you know and you've been on a you've you've seen this firsthand of course yeah. over your career with LPL Satara and now Private Advisor Group. Yeah, well, I think as always, there are several component parts that drive you know valuations at any at any given moment, and we're certainly seeing that today. The equity markets are are at all time highs, record highs, yep, and obviously even the fixed income market continues to por- perform. Okay, considering how low interest rates are, and there's lots of cash out there. We talked about that in terms of uh, private equity fund cash holdings, potential buyers, the people. Yeah, private equity equity firms have a lot of money to deploy across various types of investments, and there, over the last ten years, there's been a significant increase in the number of participants in the wealth management space, you can call it RIAs, but it's really all about the trends that people are aware of regarding RIAs and wealth management more broadly. And again, you know, 10 years ago, there weren't that many opportunities for those types of investments relative to today. Again, there has been a fairly significant and discernible trend within wealth management of assets moving to advisory. So the the allocation of assets across brokerage and you know commission-based business versus advisory is significantly shifted towards advisory over the last 10 years. And that has an effect of creating more recurring revenue, more uh, sort of discernible cash flow is, is another way of looking at that. And that's what the private equity buyers want, right? They want that, that free cash flow that a uh- that an yeah, they're not looking at return on money, you know, sort of right. money on cash on cash, and they utilize various techniques to realize that, uh, including you know debt financing, etc. Uh, but on behalf of the investors that that invest in their funds, they look for opportunities to extend capital into various attractive uh, investments, and and the wealth management space is much better understood today than it was 10 years ago. Again, 10 years ago, it was largely, you know, the big wire houses. And, and so if you were buying into the story of wealth management and the growth growth potential there and the characteristics of it, it was more difficult because you had to buy Morgan Stanley stock, which had trading and all sorts of other activities, you know, or a Bank of America or JP Morgan or whatever. And you were buying other types of risk, other types of businesses, not just wealth management. And 
also the opportunity to in, invest in a more concentrated way on the component part of, of a business that was specifically relating to wealth management and the, and the kind of characteristics of wealth management has, has really boomed. And again, some of that's another big shift that's taken place in the market, which is the move to independence, where today the number of advisors that are affiliated with RIAs who are operating their own businesses uh, on an entrepreneurial basis or are participating in businesses that are catering to independent advisors has step changed relative to where it was, again, even 10 years ago. So, Right. If I can just give you a point to illustrate how poorly understood the wealth management model, the independent RAA model was understood by the marketplace, I used to get calls from analysts with hedge funds in 2010 and 2011, essentially asking me if if they think I should, if if it would be okay for them to invest in LPL stock. So they were asking me advice <laughs> because I see, as you remember, you were at LPL then, I think, right? Yes. And I, I was, was covering there for their IPO. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was covering LPL very closely. And, you know, as, as close as anyone in the marketplace, perhaps. And I got, you know, calls from several hedge fund analysts saying, what yep. do you know about LPL? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I would we always the- say, hey, I'm not an investment advisor. I don't I can't give investment advice. <laughs> That's right. It's worth what but, you pay for it. But they were really grasping for some kind of way into what you know what was the fair valuation for LPL which debuted at 30 bucks a share and then bounced around that yep. range for a while before taking off but if we could just go back to the how was an RAA valued in terms of per revenue per EBITDA now if you could walk us through that a little bit yeah well again 10 years ago you know people tended to look at benchmarks like you know, one times revenue was a reasonable sort of proxy for how things were transacting at that time. Now it's, you know, more like four times revenue. Okay. And uh, if, if you look at that again, and as you said earlier, the more common nomenclature around valuation is as a multiple to EBITDA because that looks at things after expenses and it looks at real sort of tangible cash flow from a business. And there, of course, multiples might have been somewhere uh, 10 years ago, may have been three to four times. You've seen a few, you saw a few then that were above that, but not many. It depends on the size and, you know, sort of a lot of the individual characteristics that are going on there as size does have an impact on valuation multiples, the larger the size, the larger the multiple, essentially, because it's that much more of a diversified business and uh, it's generating that much more cash flow and your ability to utilize debt and utilize other tools for uh, essentially the way you structure it from a capital perspective is is more flexible the larger you are. And uh, of course, nowadays we're seeing multiples on EBITDA for those types of, of firms, you know, well over 15 times, sometimes 20 times. Uh, and, you know, I, again, you could say that that's extremely expensive, but you have to bear in mind the the things we've been talking about in, in terms of, first of all, the overall markets are significantly higher than they were 10 years ago. Uh, so everything's more expensive than it was 10 years ago. And the relative education and knowledge around these types of enterprises, our types of enterprises like private advisor group, is much, much uh, more advanced than it was 10 years ago. And so uh, you, you have people who have had 10 years of history and relatively good history. These things have performed very, very well. Right. And so there's that much more confidence in the stability and, and the assumptions that had been made. And so that coupled with that many more buyers uh, being in the market and that much more cash to deploy, and you have a Federal Reserve out there that's providing relatively cheap money for borrowing purposes. So there's, there's a lot of factors that have converged here to make these valuations present themselves the way they do. And 
you know, again, I would I would call it fair to slightly above fair valuations, you know, based on the experience that I have had. It doesn't strike me as, as any kind of bubble or any kind of just so far out of kilter relative to the fundamentals that are used to to look at things like valuation that, that people should be inordinately concerned. When I was doing the research for the article, uh, the first or second week of June, so about, I don't know, five, six weeks ago from, from today, I think the EBITDA multiple for Focus Financial, which is the kind of the proxy that you can use because it's a publicly, publicly traded RIA, very large, of course, one of the largest with $250 billion in assets out there. The EBITDA multiple was 15 times, right? So that's what the market is pricing. That's what the public market is pricing a very large, substantial RIA network at. So, you know, that would make sense for other firms to be valued at that in that, or, or as you say, even higher. Right. Jeff, Jeff, uh, what do you have for RJ here? Yeah. Hey, RJ. You know, back when we used to go to conferences in person, and I know that's starting <laughs> up again, but back in the olden days. Olden days. Whenever they would have a session on M&A activity, I would always see the audience always perk up when they got chances to ask questions. It was always about, how do I know what my firm's worth? How do, how do you guys, you big buyers, and you know, we're talking about the, the people on the panel, how do you value firms? And there, it was always like, it depends. And it, and it does depend. I mean, Bruce is talking a lot about EBITDA, but it's, it's, it's not just assets. It's not, I mean, you look at Carson, for example. That, you know, if you just look at their assets, 18 billion roughly and a billion dollar valuation, I can't, I got to imagine there's a lot of RIAs out there over the past week or so that started looking at their own numbers and say, hey, I got this much money. This is what I'm worth. But as, <laughs> as, I, as I know, you know, it's not that simple because, I mean, Carson is really three businesses. The AUM is, is just one of their businesses. Right. What do you think about, I mean, how, if our audience is financial advisors, which they mostly are on this show, how do you tell them ways to kind of, you know, back of the envelope value their businesses if they're they're thinking about maybe putting themselves on the market or maybe answering some of these some of these inquiries that they're getting? Sure. Yeah. And we have those conversations frequently with advisors who are interested in affiliating with private advisor group. And, and we're, you know, kind of very happy to have those conversations because they they do provide information to to advisors about their practice and what are best practices and what are really focal points for for valuation and you know sort of the worth of the business itself. But before I do that, I, I did want to say, you know, at Private Advisor Group, we're really excited that we are going to have an in-person annual conference coming up in September in Philadelphia. And we're, you know, we're really looking forward to that. All right. Uh, so oh, that's, that's great. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We're we're doing it right there at the home of uh, independence. So <laughs> it's, a, it's got a lot of symbolism for us on a lot of different levels. And, and we know that our advisors who you know, haven't been able to meet with us in person since 2019 are super excited to, uh, to come and join us. So we're getting a lot of registrations and a lot of people who are uh, very excited about that. But coming back to your, your question, you know, as you said, there's a lot of constituent parts that go into it. For a firm, if it, if it has a number of advisors affiliated with it, you know, kind of what are those advisor practices like? What's the percentage that's in advisory relationships solely uh, relative to brokerage? You know, this this concept of hybrid, uh, where people have a portion of their assets that are purely advisory in an RIA, and then they have a portion of their business that's commission based and it's brokerage. Uh, in the traditional sense, and you know the market values the former more than the latter because of the recurring nature of advisory fees and the you know sort of stability of those cash flows uh, over time, where people can really look at those versus transaction type revenue streams that are a little bit less predictable. Um, in some cases, a lot less predictable. Um, but in any event, a lot of that is shifting uh, through time. Anyway, people look at where the client concentrations are, where, you know, both geographically as well as in size, if they have, you know, a few clients that are very large versus a number of clients that are all similarly sized, that is just viewed as more valuable because it's 
better diversified, et cetera. And you're, you run less risk if somebody, if somebody for any reason were to leave the firm. Uh, so, so there's, you know, kind of metrics around that. People look at sort of the operating platform, you know, nowadays in particular, the area of focus for us, and, and we talk a lot to advisors about this in terms of what are they doing to safeguard their business, cybersecurity, the kind of tech, uh, technological capabilities that they have to not only provide a good experience for their end clients, but also protect private information and, you know, really understand the risk that's out there in terms of, of you know, what we've all come to know in these cyber attacks, it's hitting across all, all sectors of the economy. And so there's a cost of doing business out there uh, and a complexity factor to doing business that, that has to be considered in, in any kind of valuation that's done in terms of the quality of the management, the quality of the, of the individual. Also, things like succession planning is very important. Uh, and, it, it, you know, it's a constant area of, of effort for us because advisors largely, you know, only, only 20 to 25 percent of advisors have a formal written succession plan. And for purposes of continuity of the business and all the revenue it generates and the characteristics that it has, not to mention the most important thing, which is taking care of the clients, having a succession plan is very important. And people like Private Advisor Group uh, are able to provide advisors with a meaningful succession plan that you know, not only makes sure their business is protected, but also provides value to, to their heirs in the event a succession plan is needed to be activated. So, and this is going to just get more and more of a, of a forefront thing as we go forward, given that the average age of advisors is, you know, somewhere in the mid to late fifties. So, right. RJ is, I know Ron Carson has his own jet that he, you know, flies to meet people with and flies around the country on, or is private or John Highland and, and Patrick Sullivan at private advisor group, are they going to get a jet? And uh, in the future, do you think so you guys can fly around the country or what? Well, we might get some tickets on Southwest Airlines. <laughs> but, you know, I don't re- you can imagine I don't really want to comment too much about I just had, like that. I had to ask the question. You know? Yeah, no, this this again may be one of the outtake things you uh, have for your, for your annual show. <laughs> no, but, that's uh, going on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, hey, our at Private Advisor Group, we value humility uh, in in terms of you know keeping our feet on the ground and and remembering our humanness. Uh, and uh, again, this is a very rewarding profession on a lot of different levels, including financially. But I do think you know, sort of all joking aside, it is important to uh, to be humble about the work that we're doing because so many people do depend on us outside of a outside of somebody's uh, general practitioner or physician their financial advisor is probably the most important person in their life, you know, kind of outside of their immediate family. So that- ARJ, um, we, we know that there are all kinds of things driving consolidation in the, in the independent RIA space. You talked about a lot of them, including the, the aging demographic, which, I mean, I, it seems just like by sure math, those numbers have to kind of eventually go down with younger people coming in and older people retiring. But let's face it, this is a profession that you don't really have to retire at the at the youngest of ages because it's not manual labor. And um, as long as your brain's still working, you can probably do this well in your 70s. But the two things that that are that are to me the biggest drivers of the consolidation in the space and things that are not going away is the influence of private equity money and the fees. These fees in the advisory space are, are measured as the stickiest fees out there. You're seeing fee compression across the, the financial services space. But I mean, we had Rick Edelman on the, on the podcast a, a couple of weeks ago, and he said, you know, he doesn't see 1% fees going away. And he says, he says his firm charges well over 1% and he's proud of it. What, what for smaller you, accounts, for the smaller accounts, he said, though. What do you think? I mean, obviously, private equity wouldn't be interested as interested in the RAA space if it weren't for the fees and fees at this level. But I mean, what's your thought on on private equity in this space? I mean, it's it's clearly driving consolidation. And and I just can't imagine that all consolidation is good. 
Well, you've touched on a number of different things there, Jeff. Look, I, I, first of all, in terms of fees and fee compression, you know, I, I am an advocate for the fee structure, if you will, around advice itself. So, and, mm-hmm. and, I do, and I do not believe there should be much, if any, compression on the value of advice. The, the complexity and the issues that are involved in helping a client achieve financial well-being is every bit as complicated and difficult today, if not more so, than it was 20 years ago. And that's really what you're paying for, for that element of the cost structure of the business. Other areas of the business are compressing in fees. The cost to operate has gone down through technology. You know, obviously, ticket charges, commissions, all those types of things have rightfully compressed because with the advent of technology, a lot of things are getting essentially modeled out and put into more systemic type processes that can be done very, very efficiently and very inexpensively. Similarly, within asset management, there's fee compression because, well, two things. One, there were super normal profits in in the asset management world relative to sort of every other aspect of financial services historically. So that needed to normalize somewhat, and that was more going to be them reducing cost and pricing than than the rest of the world increasing pricing. And so those things I consider to be input cost. So when you're operating a wealth management business and you're thinking about the the various costs that come into play, be it in creating statements or, you know, and again, a lot of people take electronic statements now instead of having them mailed. Well, that saves money and therefore you can lower costs. But the funds themselves, mutual funds and other types of investment vehicles, you know, the fact that they're lowering costs is a good thing for advisors, right? It allows them to utilize these inputs, the things that you need to express asset allocation and to put together a financial plan and put money to work. Those things are being done uh, less expensively now than they were in the past. And that's a good thing. And, and I'll give you an example I use often to sort of highlight what I'm really talking about. So let's imagine that you could go out and you can, and you can buy a three times leveraged inverse ETF to that's pegged to the S&P 500. So it's an inverse. So as the S&P mm-hmm. goes up, the value of this ETF would go down threefold, right? So it's 3x leverage. Well, yeah. there are places that offer that investment to you free, quote unquote. Like you can buy it for no, no cost to get in or get out and a very low cost to, to sort of hold it. Okay, great. But that doesn't mean it's a good investment. <laughs> the fact that you can get it for free in no way suggests that that's a smart investment to have. So enter an advisor where the advisor says, hey, uh, Jeff and Bruce, I'm going to work with you on your financial plan, and I'm going to work with you on your objectives, and I'm going to deploy uh, the investments that you have in a certain way, and you're going to pay me a certain amount of money for that. and as a result, you're, I'm not going to use that leveraged inverse uh, ETF. The fact that it's free means nothing to me. It's not a good investment. And it doesn't match up with your objectives in any way. And so, you know, if you fast forward, particularly markets like this, and you've lost 60% of your principal on that investment, but you got to do it for free, I don't think you feel good about that. So the value of an advice, of some advice and guidance really, really is great. And another great example is last year, you saw it in March of 2020, a huge number of people went to cash as the pandemic came out and people were really concerned with what was going to go on. The numbers spiked dramatically and largely that was self-directed funds, self people, people, basic individuals without the help of an advisor who panicked and got frightened and they moved to cash. Well, most of advisor funds didn't and as a result, here they are, you know, the, the people who sold in March of 2020 are still waiting for the place where they can come back in. Yeah. I mean, RJ, I'm not, I'm not questioning the value of advice. Yeah. I'm, and I'm not even in a position to question the fees that anyone uses. I just write about it. But my yeah. question is the impact of private equity in this space. I mean, private equity, they, first of all, their investments are, you know, relatively short term and everybody knows that going in. 
We just saw that with you know Bain Capital buying its uh, buying what was sold off from another private equity owner at Carson. But you know, private equity they they are driven by adding scale and increasing scale. They're not buying these companies because they want them to stay as they are. That's not what the private equity model is. I'm asking you, what is the you know the is there any downside to all this consolidation? I mean, you got a company like CI Financial in Canada that Bruce and I have talked to to guys on this podcast that say, you know, those guys are they're driving up valuations. And anytime you can drive up valuations, I guess it's a good thing for the seller, but it might not be a great thing for the buyers. So I'm asking you what you think the influence of private equity is, because this is a relatively new concept in this space. Well, I guess it is, you know, it is and it isn't, right? Because again, Hellman and Freeman and TPG invested in LPL in 2004. So it's been around for a long time. And oh, by the way, Hellman and Freeman and TPG stayed as investors in LPL well after the IPO all the way through 2014 and still may have some holdings today. I mean, they would be significantly less, but, um, and that even in the case of Carson that you were talking about, that that original firm that was involved, I mean, that holding was over five years. Um, and yeah, well, so that's people, five who, years, people that's what I mean by relatively short. Pardon? I'm, I'm, that's, I'm, I'm no, a, a private equity investment is usually five to seven or something like that. That's what I mean by relatively short. I mean, I mean, if you if you if you partner with a private equity firm, you know you're going to have new owners in a half a dozen years, or you're going to go public. But you're always going to it's always going to be something along those lines. Well, yeah, I mean, again, if you look at publicly traded companies, they're having new owners every day, right? I mean, so <laughs> I don't think you can compare a, somebody who owns a few shares of stock in to somebody that owns a thirty-year company. No. Well, you can. And because, again, there are publicly traded companies that have large shareholders. You know, they may not be 30 percent, but they're they're in most of the S&P 500 companies. There are significant holders of, of Apple stock, et cetera. So anyway, it doesn't you know really diminish the point of your question. I, I think by and large, the the impact and the influence and the arrival of private equity participation in the wealth management space has been has been a positive thing. They do invest and yes, they do want to see growth. They're largely focused on organic growth. I mean, there are private equity firms that will come in and help firms acquire other firms and do consolidation as as you're saying, but a lot of the the primary growth lever within the space has been organic growth, growth in assets at the client level, growth in advisors, et cetera. And uh, so, and private equity, the folks I've worked with certainly are very willing to invest additional funds into, into a firm. The other thing we've seen recently, and you pointed it out in the, in the Carson transaction is that Sometimes the the rotation is to another private equity firm. It's not just, hey, you're going to do an IPO or you're going to be sold per se. Sometimes it's it's just utilizing the fact that one buyer is willing to come in or another couple of buyers will come in to take out the original buyer. So there's lots of different combinations of things going on and the relative valuations and the relative behaviors uh, are you know, relatively consistent. And, and the holding periods that you're seeing, again, to me, a five to seven year holding period is not short by any stretch of the imagination. And, and you're now hearing about people who are much more willing to increase at the private equity level to increase their holding period uh, well beyond five to seven years, if that's what they choose to do. They just want the flexibility as shareholders to uh, look through the various pathways to liquidity that would exist for themselves and for you know the people whose money they invest but that's no different than if you're a advisor and you're 65 years old as you say a lot of advisors can and do go beyond you know what was considered to be traditional retirement age for another podcast i'm sure you'd have it around there's you know the whole concept of retirement is a whole different animal today than it yep. was when we were growing up. And it's going to continue to change as life expectancies extend. So 
But be that as it may, if you're an advisor and you are looking to make a lifestyle shift or you want to move into a place of, of you know, working less or maybe exiting altogether, you're looking for a buyer and a change. And so that's where succession planning comes in. That's where all these other things come in. And, and over the next 10 years, you're going to see a significant rotation just you know, just yeah, I know. And, and I'm not saying if I, mean, I apologize if it sounds like I'm saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's such a new thing and it's moving so fast. I just wonder where the where the end is. Are we just going to have one giant Walmart financial planning firm in the end? <laughs> when, when I mean, at, at some point, the aggregators are going to start buying the aggregators and that's when it's going to get interesting. Yeah, no, and I, look again, and this is not unique to just the wealth management space. It's, it's. You pointed out an example in, you know, sort of consumer in the consumer sector, uh, Walmart, and Walmart is very large, but so it's Costco, you know. And there's, and and people used to say, I mean, I started out in banking years ago, and everybody said, oh my goodness, there's whatever it was, twelve thousand banks in the United States. That's just way too many. It's going to consolidate. And it did. Did it consolidate to two banks? No, it didn't. Nor is it going to. And there's several reasons why the consolidation has its own kind of check and balance. But within wealth management, one of the checks and balances that it will exert itself at a certain level, I think we're way far away from it, but at a certain level will be regulators themselves. JP Morgan can't buy Bank of America period. The regulators won't allow that to happen. So it's, it's not going to get to a place of, of that level of size and that level of market share where it's like an oligopoly or something. And, and we're, there are still 4,000 broker-dealers in the United States. I mean, <laughs> 4,000. And there has been some consolidation, but we're, you know, and a lot of these a lot of these firms you're talking about, even though the numbers sound pretty big, you know, Carson at 17 billion or something like that. I mean, Fidelity has over 10 trillion in assets. So, the, you know, the biggest RIA you can name is still relatively small. And so, you know, I don't, I don't think there's any jeopardy of, you know, kind of having the consolidation trend, A, be bad for the end client or or get to a point where it's it's you know negative for the overall marketplace itself and and the private equity groups along with others are definitely helping with the kind of consolidation you're seeing and a lot of it is you know really making sense and and it will continue to All right Bruce Okay great no that's great again i encourage people to check out the article, we didn't get into some of the math and and the like, which is better on paper, I think, than in discussion <laughs> that kind yeah. of buttresses this argument. But there's some there's a little bit of math and then there's a little timeline of some of these big private equity deals that we wrote um, that we mentioned rather in our discussion with RJ today. And again, it's titled how the, the, the title is how high can RIA valuations go? So. RJ, thanks very much. Anything other than the conference at Private Advisor Group that you guys, uh, that you, Patrick and John, are excited about coming up in the fall and the winter? Well, thanks, Bruce. Yeah, look, it's a very exciting time as we're talking about. There's plenty of interesting topics to be had, but, uh, you know, back to sort of organic growth and the real, you know, sort of focus on the business, you know, Private Advisor Group, we've had a really great first half. Again, speaking to some of the the trends that we were talking about here on on this podcast, uh, you know, our growth in new advisors over year over year, an eight percent increase in advisors, a uh, almost thirty percent increase in in asset levels. So we're getting more numbers of advisors, but the advisors we're getting tend to be even larger than they were in the past. And interestingly, we saw a fourfold increase in the number of advisors that affiliated with us who are RIA only. They don't have any any brokerage component to their business, and that's a trend we're we're continuing to see. Uh, again, a lot of advisors are attracted to the RIA structure and the efficiency of it, and the you know sort of simplicity of it. But as I noted in here, there there's a lot of work to be done when you're an RIA around 
operating in a way that's fully compliant and is dealing with the complexities that are out there. And that's where we're focused. We've added a number of people to our team uh, this year in really critical positions. Uh, People like Frank Smith, who runs our advisor growth team, and Vern Marble, who runs our business development group. We've added Kelly Coulter in our marketing team. We've added to our finance teams. You know, and and let me just as an aside say that the war for talent, if you will, or the you know the things you're reading about in terms of people having difficulties in hiring and filling positions, that's a very real phenomenon, uh, and it's something we need to pay a watchful eye on. And we've we've talked about this for a long time, Bruce, in terms of of we need more women advisors, we need more diversity in our advisor base, and we really haven't responded to. Uh, how to get them best trained and get people into this business in a way that's going to move the needle. I mean, we're doing enough to kind of stay afloat. But if you, again, look out over the next 10 years, there's a serious issue out there in terms of, of getting those advisors in. And so at Private Advisor Group, we're really focused on, you know, a lot of these trends. We're really investing heavily in technology and in simplifying the platform. and and uh, and diversifying our business uh, across that multi-custodial platform. So okay, good well, that's stuff. great. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon, RJ. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, now we've got Peter Yee, head of short duration at Northern Trust Asset Management going to talk to us about what he sees and what people are seeing in terms of inflation. Everybody's talking about it these days. Biden had a town hall meeting earlier this week and uh, was asked about inflation. He seems to be following the the party line of the the Fed, which I I guess that makes sense that uh, they see this as a temporary thing or transitory, which as I understand that means that it doesn't mean the prices that we're seeing today are going to go down, but they're not going to continue to go up or the rate we're, of inflation we're seeing now won't continue. Peter, welcome to, the, welcome to the show. Hi there. Thanks for having me. What can you tell us about, about this inflation stuff? I've never uh, in my recent adult lifetime, I don't recall anybody talking about inflation as much as they are right now. And I, I agree to being partially uh, guilty of driving it because it uh, is an interesting thing to write about. But I want to know if I should be afraid, and if I am, where the heck do I hide? Well, Jeff, there certainly is a lot going on in terms of the inflation theme. I think we've all heard the word transitory hundreds of times over the last couple of years. And our view at Northern Asset Management is we do think inflation is going to be transitory. You know, there are so many things that are distorting the uh, inflation metrics we're seeing today that, you know, we fully acknowledge that inflation is very high right now and higher than where the Fed would like it if it were a sustainable range or a sustainable level. We think there's just going to be so many distortions in the next few months that really come from the base effects, which are you know, the comparison from the prior year to this year, knowing that last year the uh, we had several parts of the economy that were shutting down and the prices that we're seeing back then were certainly not normal. Uh, we also know that there's all kinds of supply chain disruptions, even if you think about, you know, the manufacturing sector, if you think about the chip shortage. You know, all those things are going to unfortunately bring a temporary burst of inflation for the sectors that are relying on these supply chains. And then we have, you know, front loaded stimulus from, you know, the fiscal packages that we saw last year. And because certain parts of the economy are now opening up, we're seeing all kinds of pent up demand start to really reach for some of these products that, quite frankly, for all the supply chain disruptions that are resulting in just higher prices for all these goods and services. So that pent-up demand is just being met with higher prices. Data is just going to be really difficult to predict just given this unprecedented nature of 
the reopening dynamics, as well as, you know, again, the impact of the fiscal stimulus that is winding down here. So yeah, transitory is really how we're thinking about it. And once these distortions kind of smooth out, we think we're just going to get back to what we think is going to be our trend growth, which was very similar to what we saw prior to the pandemic, where you know, we were thinking that we'd see very modest growth. And because of that modest growth, it has been very difficult for the Fed to bring inflation up above 2% consistently prior to the pandemic. So we think that trend is uh, just going to continue when uh, things start to open up more fully over the next what, months. Do you, um, I mean, I know that, that I hear what you're saying, and you and I have talked about this before. The distortions, the extreme distortions, unprecedented distortions. And because they're unprecedented, I'm just wondering how confident you are that we're just going to move through this and get back to normal. I mean, we're talking about, you know, government spending, stimulus programs, businesses completely shut down, brought offline and then being brought back online. I just, I mean, I'm not calling you a liar or saying you don't know what you're talking about or saying that you're wrong because I hope you are but it just it, it seems like this is this is untested though right i mean you're you're kind of hypothesizing well i'll agree with you i do hope i'm wrong but what i will say is you know all of our forecast all of our breaking down of the certain inputs that represent inflation you know we we come down to the same conclusion that, you know, all of the pricing pressure we're seeing right now is really just a step up for the next, you know, next or the past year, as well as um, the next couple months. We don't with, if you think about the wage growth, if you think about the labor market, there are increases in wages, but You know, if you think about how the hourly wages have moved from, you know, roughly $10 an hour to $15 an hour with this movement towards, you know, income inequality that we're seeing from uh, the administration and some of the influence and motivation around that, we don't think this is going to be a persistent trend where we see these big jumps in wages year after year. We just kind of see this as a one-time step up. And the next increase in wages will be much, much more modest. And frankly, we've uh, anecdotally heard that even some low-wage employers are saying, you know, this one-time step-up is really just, uh, it's being front-loaded. And some employees may not see uh, wage increases after this one-time step-up for years, And Mm -hmm. we think that is certainly a dynamic that's going to weigh on inflation going forward. And that's just another reason why we think inflation is going to be pretty modest going forward. Talk about this uh, concept that that is, uh, to me, unique to Northern Trust is what you guys are calling stuckflation. I think it's something that you said we were in before the pandemic and you expect that we're going to go back into it right or or am i am i misinterpreting that nope you you got that right so this has been a theme that we've talked about for the last 5 years and frankly it's kind of been one of the winning calls that we've had in terms of thinking about our investment thesis and thinking about our asset allocation but you know really it's the effects of just this slow growth that we've talked about this modest growth And you think about how technology and automation have really emerged as as major trends that will keep inflation, in our view, at or below what the central banks are ultimately looking for in terms of their inflation targets. So it's really those, those effects of technology that are really making the, you know, the inflation story kind of come to our view and that's it's just been really hard for the last decade for the Fed to even get their inflation up to their 2% historical target. Well, Bruce, do you have anything for uh to try and stump Peter Yee? Oh, I cannot stump this gentleman. Are you kidding me? 
I mean, you can hear the knowledge just coming yeah. out of this, this, this young man's voice. Just one thing here. I think it's interesting, Peter, that you were referencing wage growth, because I think when people think back to the 1970s, right, and the huge inflation back then, a lot of that was fueled by worker wage growth, in particular unions, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there's been a lot of evidence that even from a union perspective, it's not necessarily as strong as what we saw in the 1970s, to your point. In Amazon... So it's different now. It's not... It's certainly different. Right. If you think about how the industries have evolved, and if you think about you know, where unions have been successful in terms of building and keeping a stronger presence, you know, we think that that dynamic has certainly just changed over the decades. And it's, uh, it's certainly apparent with, you know, the Amazons of the world that have, tr- have had workers that have tried to create unions and have been unsuccessful. Right. That just kind right. of proves to us that you know, that trend may be a smaller influence going forward. Right. What are just one or two basic things or or simple things that a financial advisor can talk to his or her client about, clients about when it comes to this current inflationary market and kind of the spurt of inflation that's getting all the headlines right now, do you think? Well, you know, we like to take a step back and just, you know, think about the macro environment because that's what's really going to guide a lot of our investment advice, especially as it relates to asset allocation. And, you know, the way that I would position just some of this higher inflation that we're seeing today, we just don't think it's going to going to stick around. And if we go through the year and some of the supply chain disruptions start to ease. I mean, we're already seeing all kinds of different inputs that are coming down in terms of price and energy is, is a, is a, is a great example. I mean, we've seen WTI crude, although it's, you know, over 200% higher from one year ago, you know, we're starting to see a little pullback over the last week. If you look at things like lumber, that is probably still up, you know, close to three to two to 300% from a year ago, it's dramatically down from the peak of where it was three or four months ago. And so, you know, we're starting to see some of that start to ease again. A lot of it is, again, just some, uh, supply chain, easing. And of course, from our perspective, these are all good things because if inflation starts to settle down to something more reasonable, then obviously we know the value of your dollar could be uh, a, a lot stronger. And so that's kind of some of the conversation as we think about you know the macro and we think about asset allocation. Inflation is certainly a really important input as we think about that. But, you know, we think that, you know, with the vaccine rolls out, rollouts becoming more and more prevalent, you know, that's going to help alleviate things like the labor shortages. And at some point, we're going to find a much more reasonable equilibrium. But unfortunately, we think that equilibrium is going to result in inflation that is not going to meet the Fed's target. And the Fed has articulated pretty clearly that their goal is to not just meet the 2% target, but exceed it for a sustainable period or believe that it's going to be uh, high for that sustainable period. Well, that's kind of where we are now, though. Uh, it's, uh, that seems to go against the grain of the transitory argument. Well, I, I think we're being forward looking here by saying, inflation is higher, our view is inflation is going to get dramatically lower once we get to the the real trend here. And that real trend is going to happen probably in the second half, where we're going to, again, start to see all of these pricing pressures ease. And once that happens, we're not going to see four, five, six percent inflation anymore. 
it's going to start gravitating towards 2%. And starting in 2023, we can start to see it even being below 2% again, because that really was the trend prior to the pandemic. And so, you know, that's our, our, our view, at least in terms of how we're thinking about, you know, the the big flare up that we saw this year and the normalization that we're starting that we're going to expect next year and the year after that. But unless I misheard you, you said that the Fed is going to be pushing up to get to get above its target rate of two percent. Is that what we're going to experience in 2022? We don't think that's going to be the case. We think that they want inflation to be above its target. It doesn't mean that they're going to get there. Our view is they're not going to tweak monetary policy dramatically until they meet that objective of having inflation not just at 2%, but above it. And so what that really means is we just don't think the Fed is going to raise rates until we can see them accomplish that goal. And right now, evidence for us is we're seeing higher inflation today, and that was well telegraphed and, quite frankly, expected because of the base effect calculations. But again, going forward, we think all of that is going to ease and we can see inflation going below 2% even as early as next year. How much does the the Fed's balance sheet, the Fed's debt, have to, or the I'm sorry, the U.S. government's debt have to do with this monetary policy? I mean, I hear a lot about this stuff, and it, it just kind of my head goes and starts swimming around in circles because I, I don't know who to believe. But do you think that they're really motivated to to manage that that debt by otherwise kind of crushing the economy? So the U.S. Treasury is. Certainly, at right now, they are constrained by the debt ceiling, but our assumption is that at some point, and it'll likely be bundled with the latest infrastructure package that is being negotiated, but we think the debt ceiling will ultimately get resolved. But once that does happen, yeah, I think we are going to see more issuance of U.S. Treasuries to finance these massive fiscal packages. And that is actually being met with a lot of demand from the investor community. And you can even see, you know, where treasury rates are today. I mean, the 10-year is close to 1.25% again. And to us, that suggests there still remains just insatiable demand for U.S. treasuries. And even if the U.S. treasury temporarily has to increase its issuance to finance some of these near-term fiscal stimulus, you know, we think the market will will be able to absorb it. But um, over time, we do think it is going to be a problem depending on how much more issuance the, the Treasury is going to have. And part of the infrastructure package and part of the negotiation is how is the stimulus going to be financed? And as that gets worked out, maybe that gives a little relief in terms of the Treasury supply not being as large as what uh, people are expecting. But certainly in the short term, yeah, our expectation is there's going to be even more treasury issuance in the latter half of the year. Well, Peter, you're a, you're a calming influence, and I'm sure everybody that is worried about inflation will feel better and be able to sleep at night with you. A calming voice too, Jeff, you know, very right. calm. Exactly. I'm going to replay this tonight when I'm when I'm trying to fall asleep because it's excellent. It's, it's <laughs> I don't have to worry about anything because I got Peter Yee telling me it's going to be okay. It, Stop it, makes, it makes great pillow talk at night. <laughs> well, what I do want to I do want to throw at you, Peter, is what if you're wrong? What are some of the scenarios that we could be expecting if these aren't transitory inflation numbers? I mean. What are some of the scenarios that that could unfold and how would the Fed or I guess the fiscal and monetary policies manage it from your you know perspective? Sure. So if we are wrong and inflation is persistently above 2% and the test is we need to get through all of these distortions and uh, really understand what the trend is for inflation. But if that is the case, then 
our view is we can see a lot of the reflation trade coming back in in front and center. Mm -hmm. This should help financials because if the yield curve starts to get higher and more steep, that's certainly going to help the banking industry. And if the banking industry even continues to have a more stronger and solid position in terms of earnings and capital, then hopefully that also allows them to be more, uh, uh, I guess, having the levers to do more from the loan side and help spur more growth within the economy. You know, the key is really what are the banks going to do and how much they can do in terms of loans and how they put their capital to use. If inflation is higher, then, you know, having rates really, really low just doesn't seem to make sense. And quite frankly, if you look at where treasury rates are today and if inflation stays where it's at, then, you know, it's really a negative real yield. Right now, the, the break-evens for the 10-year are suggesting that you know, real yields are at negative, just over negative 1%. And that is you know, certainly going to hurt savers. That's certainly going to hurt those that are very reliant on, on fixed income. Mm-hmm. And frankly, you know, we would have to see higher rates to help tame inflation so it doesn't end up being runaway inflation. And so we can see a total reversal of, you know, the Fed's monetary policy where they're extremely accommodative today and they're going to have to pivot to a much more tightening of a of a policy going yeah. forward to uh make sure well, we hopefully yeah. hopefully we don't have to deal with that. But but clearly Savers are being hurt now, and maybe people on fixed income are being hurt now by by these policies. But I mean, there's if, if there's cash is a losing battle, right? Well, certainly with cash yielding essentially nothing, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's certainly when you think about it from a real rates perspective, um, you are uh, certainly hurting pretty harshly right now. But if you look at, you know, all the cash on the sidelines, I mean, the money market industry is still around $4.5 trillion, which is still around five or 600 billion more than what it was prior to the pandemic. And if there is a catalyst in terms of what's going to fuel the next run up in risk assets, you have to look at all the cash on the sidelines and say, if rates do get higher, mm-hmm. you know, we can see investors start to think about other alternatives and you know have more have a better feeling around where to go and risk assets. And you know, again, if everything I say is is incorrect on the inflation front, you know, we would think that the uh, the real return would you know influence motivate a lot of investors to kind of move out and you know be even more active in risk assets. Well well that's that's kind of what I see is that you know the the money in money market funds being at such le- elevated levels and the the yield you're getting is is so low obviously it should be driving market performance which maybe it is driving equity market performance but I, I don't know. I mean, I if you're wrong about all this stuff, Peter, we're going to have you back on here and, and you're going to apologize to everyone. And if you're right, we're going to have you make another prediction. OK, I like uh, <laughs> I like the way that sounds. But, um, <laughs> you know, I'm, I, I certainly enjoy uh, chatting with you guys. But, um, you know, again, you know, inflation, it's it's just so difficult to read right now because of these distortions. I think the key here is let's figure out what the trend looks like after all these distortions go away. And then we can kind of reassess where we are in the economy as well as where the Fed should go with monetary policy. But uh, again, when, you know, one of the uh, corners of the market that 
you know, I watch very, very closely is the money market industry. And, you know, there is going to be a point where because rates are so low, investors are going to start to ask themselves if they're looking at their dashboards and they, they see risk assets it all lighting up green like it looks like today, you know, there's going to be a point where those investors start to say, ask, hey, why am I still earning zero on my cash? And, you know, that may start unthawing some of that, some of those assets in the money market industry into other risk asset classes. But uh, in because we just went through this really dramatic pandemic, you know, I still think there are investors both on the personal as well as the institutional side that feel that they need to have a safety net in this environment. And if you think about how much new issuance we saw in 2020, a lot of it was corporations that, you know, their knee-jerk reaction to the pandemic was, we just need to have as much cash as we can to help protect our operations. And now mm -hmm. that things are starting to open up again, you know, that cash should be deployed in their operations or they should be, you know, returned to shareholders. There's a lot of things that that cash can be doing that can be much more productive than staying on the sidelines. So that's just another thing that, um, again, bringing- how long, how long do you see this cycle of distortion, distorted data? When, when do we get it through the, the pipeline where we're back to that good old days of stuckflation? Yeah. So the first and second quarter of last year were really tough and punishing with, as we know, many parts of the economy were shut down. But then at the end of 2020, we started to see some, uh, some positive growth again. We started to see parts of the economy opening up again. We started to see people start to spend and that pent-up demand start to uh, really work into the economy. So our view is starting at the end of the year or the second half of the year, things will start to normalize. But you know, when we get to the real trend growth, it probably won't be until the end of this year or early next year. And, and so that's when we're, our expectation is we'll get back to the stuckflation theme that we saw prior to the pandemic. Okay, well, I never thought I would be waiting for something called stuckflation because it doesn't sound like a lot of fun, but sometimes uh, the mundane is, uh, is where you feel, feel best. Right, Bruce Kelly? It makes me, th I'm getting hungry here. It's, it's stuckflation makes me think of turducken or something like, is it, oh, it, it does sound like inflation wrapped good around lunch. a pizza roll or something. I don't, I don't know. You know? All right. <laughs> it's quite the visual. I, I like it. <laughs> okay. Peter, you, thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. Hey Jeff, that was another great episode of the investment news podcast. If it's Monday, that means it's time for another podcast. We want to thank our special guests, of course, R.J. Moore of Private Advisor Group and Peter Yee of Northern Trust Asset Management. We also want to thank our producers, Stephen Lamb. Welcome back from vacation, Stephen. Uh, you can find the podcast at investmentnews.com, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review on Apple, please. Follow us on Spotify. If you have any comments or queries or questions, for us, reach out to Jeff on Twitter. His handle is at Benji Ryder. Mine is at BD News Guy. Stay tuned because we'll be talking to you next week. <laughs>